This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin Assembly Speaker Robin Voss wants to significantly cut taxes in the next state budget. The Republican leader reiterated that point at a virtual discussion last week when speaking to the state's projected $6.6 billion budget surplus, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Last time around, Republicans cut taxes by $3.4 billion, which Voss says is the bare-bones bottom of what they want to cut in the 2023-25 to budget. Voss says that he specifically wants to lower taxes for the state's top income earners and has been calling for a flat income tax for months. Democratic Governor Tony Evers will release his proposed budget on February 15th, which will then be rewritten by the Republican-controlled legislature until June. Foxconn is receiving more than $8 million in tax credits this year. Why? Because the company has employed enough people at its Mount Pleasant facility to do so, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. But unlike the company's glass orb, what those Foxconn employees are doing is opaque. Meanwhile, the village of Mount Pleasant has spent millions of dollars in infrastructure for the Voxconn facility, including building out sewer and water lines. The Federal Communications Commission has released a new map detailing internet access across the United States. But that map may contain errors. In the past, the FCC has overestimated internet access. Some states, including Wisconsin, have filed challenges to this newest map. Now you can challenge your representation on the federal agency's broadband maps, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Just make sure to do so before the January 13th deadline. Checking the map for accuracy will help guarantee that federal grants for broadband will head to where they're needed most. Area hospitals are nearing capacity this winter as the triple-demic of respiratory viruses circulate across the country, according to the Capital Times. Public Health Madison-Dane County calls the spread of RSV, flu, and COVID-19 a triple threat, and they're encouraging folks to get a flu vaccine to help reduce the spread. Representatives from UW Health say that they are seeing a record high day-to-day volume of patients and are operating at around 90% capacity. Only 31% of Wisconsinites have gotten their flu vaccine this year, according to state health data. And now on to today's top stories. With bus rapid transit starting in Madison next year, city officials are now looking at ways to increase housing along its routes to create a more pedestrian-friendly city. A new amendment to that plan has some residents in local historic districts concerned about increasing development in their neighborhoods. WORT producer Nate Weigehout has more. The city's plan commission has approved a plan to increase housing density and allow more flexibility around zoning requirements along the city's bus lines. In practice, the proposal would allow a house zoned as a single-family home to be converted into a duplex or allow an apartment building to build one level higher. This, sponsors of the ordinance say, would allow for denser housing to be built along Madison's new and improved transit lines. It's part of a plan to make Madison a more pedestrian-friendly city, as bus rapid transit is set to begin next summer. Under the proposed overlay district, property owners would be allowed to build one zoning level higher than usual. Originally, historic districts, or areas deemed historically significant, were left out of the proposed plan. But an amendment to add them in was recommended by the city's Transportation Planning and Policy Board last week, and now by the Plan Commission last night. 
If passed, the overlay district would now apply to, among others, the University Heights and Third Lake Ridge neighborhoods. Older Patrick Heck of District 2, who is one of the sponsors of the amendment, says that from the outside, people in historic neighborhoods won't notice much difference. So from the exterior, it would look the same. The Landmarks Commission and the, and the Landmarks Ordinance have no jurisdiction on what the uses are of a historic resource or what the interior is. So it's really creating opportunities for more housing. But the change brought vocal opposition from Madison residents at last night's plan commission meeting. Scores of residents voiced their concerns that change is moving too fast and without enough time for public comment. Older Bill Tischler of District 11, who spoke at last night's meeting, says that he's concerned that the city is going back on what residents have already been told. When I held a, a, a town hall meeting a while back with the mayor, the mayor was asked the direct question, will historic districts be included in, in the overlay zoning? And the answer was no. So people kind of thought, okay, this is a, this is a, this is a done deal. You know, we'll, 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 we'll be changing and going along the bus rapid transit but routes, but historic districts will not be included. It's kind of a quick change at the end for people. Alder Heck says that while this specific amendment is new to the plan, the idea to add the overlays to historic districts has been discussed by the plan commission for months. Madison resident Will Ochowitz says that while protecting our historic districts is important, addressing Madison's growing housing crisis is more important. He points to another recent change to increase flexible housing by cutting red tape for accessible housing units, regularly called backyard cottages. The city just needs more housing, and this is a gentle way to introduce more housing across the city. Duplex is the second gentlest change you can make besides an ADU. And the city has already made a, a change to make ADUs a permitted use, and we haven't seen the sky fall. And this is just the next step up. And there's no reason why we should be excluding historic districts. Members of the public also questioned how the proposal would impact federal funding for bus rapid transit. When BRT was approved, it was done with an environmental impact statement. That report took into account the possibility of overlay districts in most of Madison, but not in historic districts. Tischler says that this last-minute change could cause the federal government to withdraw their support. We put in the original request for funding, $140 million. This is a one-time federal funds to support the BRT, and historic districts were not included. You know, this is this again is like Chapter 106. It's you know an environmental impact, and so you know they did not. The staff recommended not putting this in because it would, it would not be. It could cause concerns. But Tom Lynch with the city's transportation department says that Madison should be in the clear. Right now, uh, our environmental document is beyond the statute of limitations, so it, it cannot be legally challenged. Consulting parties in the historic districts can ask the Federal Transit Administration to reopen the Section 106 process to consider this new effect. People that I have talked to in the Federal Transit Administration have indicated that they're not inclined to reopen the Section 106 process because the effect of TOD was discussed in uh, our environmental document. The plan will go before the full Common Council on January 13th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wiggyhout. On this day one year ago, Madison lost a trailblazing public servant, LGBTQ activist, historian, and mentor. Dick Wagner passed away on this day last year at the age of 78. 
As the first openly gay member of the Dane County Board, Wagner went on to document Wisconsin's LGBTQ history, launch the careers of future progressive politicians, serve on numerous boards and commissions, and advocate for a more inclusive society. An avid gardener, Wagner also fought to save several local parks, including the former Kerr-McGee Triangle Park on Jennifer Street, a park he tended to over the decades. This fall, that park was renamed to R. Richard Wagner Park. Feature contributor David Ahrens attended the renaming ceremony in October and has this remembrance. For decades, Dick Wagner was Dane County's leading public citizen. He died a year ago today. Dick Wagner held so many posts and served on so many committees and bodies that it would take most of this story to recite them. But to give him his due for the hours spent in this work, I'll mention just a few. He was member and chair of the Dane County Board, where he served for 14 years. He was chair of the Madison Planning Commission, the Urban Design Commission. He served on the State Arts Board. He was the chair of the Albrook Gardens Board. And he led many historical preservation efforts throughout the city. In addition to logging thousands of hours in committees, perhaps Dick Wagner's greatest contribution was his tireless advocacy for the rights and recognition of gay men and women. Dick was the first openly gay elected official in Madison when he was elected to the Dane County Board in 1980. At the time, 32 years ago, Dick Wagner was one of the few gay elected officials in the entire U.S. In his first year in office, he authored the first county anti-gay discrimination law in Wisconsin. Earlier, he led the fight for the first municipal law in Madison. He was also a historian, writing the first history of gay and lesbian life in our state. It was entitled, We've Been Here All Along. His second book was Coming Out, Moving Forward, Wisconsin's Recent Gay History. His greatest legacy, however, was as a mentor to many of our current political leaders, particularly Senator Tammy Baldwin and Congressman Mark Pocan. Two months ago, Madison renamed the Little Triangular Park at the intersection of Jennifer and Wilson Street after Dick Wagner. Hundreds of people turned out to honor him. Here are a few of their remarks. First, we'll hear from Alder Mike Verveer, then Mayor Rhodes Conway, and finally, Senator Tammy Baldwin. I know that all of you are quite familiar with Dick's legacy, and many of you were partners in Dick's legacy of public service all the decades that he served. Like so many of you, Dick was a, a, a good friend, a mentor, role model to me for 30 years. Also a public servant representing this area on the Dane County Board of Supervisors, the chair of that board, a longtime activist in not only county government, but city of Madison municipal government. He really couldn't say no to anything that any of the mayors asked him. And I hope that all of us can come here and sit on these benches or in this grass 
and remember him, his memory and his impact on our lives and our city. Dick Wagner was a gay rights pioneer at a time when few had the courage to be out beyond maybe their smallest circle of friends. Choice between pursuing a dream of public service in elective office or living my life with integrity by being honest about who I am. Dick Wagner taught me that I didn't have to make that choice. People like myself and many, many others growing up all over Wisconsin and frankly the nation to know that they are not alone and that they stand on the shoulders of people who came before them. Calling for the searching ones on their speechless seeking trail for the lonesome hearted lovers with too personal a tale and for each unharmful gentle soul misplaced inside a jail and we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing This has been David Ahrens for WORT News. Last month, Mayor Satya Rose Conway made her way to Canafing, the Gambia, in a visit to one of Madison's sister cities. But Canafing is just one of its sister cities, spanning from El Salvador to Germany to Japan. Madison's newest sister city, and the first one in South America, is Cusco, Peru. WORT reporter Abigail Levins spoke with Victor Villacruz, the founder of this sister city partnership, to learn more. Two weeks ago, Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway visited the Gambia, city of Canafing, one of Madison's sister cities. It's one of Madison's 10 sister city partnerships throughout the globe. And the newest of those sister city partnerships was founded earlier this year and is just getting started. It's so new that city officials tell WORT that it hasn't even been updated on the city's website. And it's the first sister city in South America. Joining me on the line is Victor Villacrez, the founder of Madison's newest sister city in Cusco, Peru. Thanks for talking with me, Victor. Thank you for having me. Yeah, could you just start by introducing yourself and telling me about what made you start this effort for the Cusco-Madison partnership? Sure. I'm of Peruvian lineage. My father was born in Cusco, left Peru in 1958, immigrated to uh, the States, and always kept uh, in contact with family there for, for many, many years. Uh, in, two, in 1999, we, we started to go back down as, when he retired. And Abigail, you know, we started our uh, initiative to form a sister city back in 2004. And so even though we are the newest, we have, you know, there's been a long history of back and forth with uh, Madison and Cusco trying to form a sister city relationship. That's some of the background of, uh, of the history of Cusco and Madison. I noticed that part of this project is in conjunction with Mundo Esperanza. Can you tell us about that organization? Sure, sure. Mundo Esperanza. So when we started before, one of the requirements for uh, a sister city is you need to have a, a nonprofit or a sponsor. And uh, so that was the first thing we needed to do is to form a nonprofit. And so we formed the nonprofit Mundo Esperanza, which means World Hope. 
And so basically you get two for one when, you know, you're, when you go to Cusco, you get the sister city uh, relationship. And then you also get, you know, the, the, the world vision of world hope, uh, Mundo Esperanza. And that nonprofit started two years ago and it, uh, is sponsor for the Sisters Cusco, Madison Cusco Sister City. What specifically about this project and Sister City Connection, thinking about Mundo Esperanza mm-hmm. as this group that helps promote the history of indigenous people and also looking at the history of indigenous people in both Madison and Cusco, how do you think this project will help promote that history? It's a very good question, Abigail, and you know, it kind of came about organically we fell upon ancient prophecy that of the Americas that was that was found in both North, Central, and South America. You know, within the Hopi, within uh, the the Inca, and, and some of the Amazon uh, tribes. And basically, it's a uh, a prophecy of reunification, and you know, it became our vision statement to Mundo Esperanza. And the prophecy goes when the eagle and the condor fly together again. Great harmony and balance will grace the land, bringing hope to the people and healing energy to the planet. And so, you know, we really live by that. And what we do forms kind of the mission of Mundo Esperanza. And does part of that is the, the cultural awareness happening in the relationship of Cusco and Madison through the sister city. A big thing, you know, that we do is support uh, and uh, increase awareness of the indigenous peoples, not only in South America, but here, you know, in, uh, you know, the land of the Ho-Chunk, and it's been a very big part of Mundo Esperanza, is to work with, you know, the local indigenous community to raise consciousness and uh, the awareness of some of the, you know, indigenous beliefs uh, that are uh, we basically live and are surrounded by, and we want to bring more awareness. What other specific projects do you see these sister cities engaging in? One of the things that, you know, we see, again, is, you know, I know it's mythopoetic and, you know, the prophecy, but the eagle represents technology and uh, rep- represents uh, knowledge and so, you know, how we see that is working closely with the universities here, the W uh, uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison, you know, to bring some of that technology down to uh, uh, South America in, in Cusco. And so recently, in June of this year, uh, you know, we had a conference in conjunction with the city of Cusco and uh, the Universidad Andina del Cusco, on, uh, on best practices in uh, landfill design and uh, uh, solid waste. And we brought a professor uh, from the uh, School of Geological, Geological Engineering, a uh, world-renowned uh, uh, landfill designer, uh, Dr. Uh, professor James Tingen went with us and um, lectured, and uh, we actually you know, went to their landfill and datafied uh, with drone you know, some of the, you know, conditions, you know, that they're experiencing in, uh, you know, kind of a, a more modern environment where, you know, there's more emphasis put on environmental best practices. They're just starting to, starting that. And, you know, we hold a lot of knowledge in that sense. So we're, we're happy to, uh, 
you know, assist and, you know, kind of work with them. And I know that's, you know, this came from uh, efforts in Gambia, another sister city, is one of our uh, initiatives that is ongoing. And the next one that, you know, or the next big one will be more cultural, where we're actually, you know, bringing down Native elders of the Ho-Chunk Nation to meet with, you know, Native elders, their counterparts, you know, hopefully we can meet with the Cato peoples of high, you know, the high Andes. So there could be a more, can be more enriched by how uh, pervasive and how rich indigenous culture is in Cusco and South America. And, you know, hopes that, you know, they're inspired to be more, more communicative with their, with their culture here. And, uh, you know, this is an exciting project that, you know, we're working on for spring of 23. So that's kind of the range of uh, projects that, you know, we're sharing in exchange with uh, um, with the Sister City uh, Cusco. I know I have you on here mainly to talk about Sister Cities, but the country of Peru has been making world headlines yeah. after the ousting sure. of President Pedro Castillo and the transfer of presidential power last week. There are protests in the streets as demonstrators are calling for a general election, the dissolution of Peru's Congress and a new assembly. What have you heard about the scene on the ground in Peru through your connections to the country? Did contact some of our uh, folks in uh, Cusco and some relatives, and uh, you know I did it pretty right after the you know, I heard, and there wasn't the, you know the verdict still out yet. You know I think it's a positive that you know hopefully it'll. I know that there was a lot of unrest with uh, you know the, the previous president. Um, not really sure you know if myself, Abigail, how it'll impact uh, the economy, uh, people's livelihood. Uh, you know, there was hope that, you know, this change would bring positive change. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what uh, that's what I heard. Um, I know that it was a big, uh, big move by uh, Congress to uh, uh, impeach, you know, the president. And uh, that uh, made world headlines. Uh, but other than that, I'm, I'm not sure. <clears throat> I am going down there in two or three weeks. Uh, I will kind of see firsthand, you know, how things uh, are uh, unfolding. Is mm-hmm. there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't covered already in this interview today? You know, I think you know, Madison has a wide, rich, representative uh, selection of uh, sister cities around the world. And, you know, I just encourage people to uh, get involved. You know, you can get involved with, uh, um, you know, the Madison Cusco Sister City. You know, I'll just direct people towards, you know, our, our website um, or Mundo Esperanza and to see, you know, if you know, that interests you. We do, we do really neat events, you know, and we do, uh, you know, projects here. And uh, there's always an opportunity to travel, you know, with the Sister City group. And, uh, you know, we, we're, we are looking for volunteers and friends, you know, to uh, be uh, more involved uh, in our organization, is, and I'm sure as well as the other sister city organizations here in Madison. I've been mm-hmm. speaking with Victor Villacres, the founder of the new sister city partnership between Cusco, Peru, and Madison, Wisconsin. Thank you so much for being here, Victor. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, as the semester comes to a close, Cardinal Call producer Hope Carnop spoke with Editor-in-Chief Sophia Vento, Managing Editor Jessica Sonkin, and Campus Editor Madeline Alfonso to look back at their biggest stories of the school year so far. Cardinal Call will be on hiatus over the winter break and will return at the start of next semester. And with the changing of semesters, Hope will no longer be producing Cardinal Call, as Madeline Alfonso will be taking over producing this feature. And thanks for everything, Hope. Good luck with everything that lays ahead. And I could not be more proud of the coverage we've been able to do this semester. Hello and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Medicine campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm Hope Carnup. Today I'm introducing The Cardinal Call's new producer, Madeline Afonso. We're joined today by our editor-in-chief, Sophia Vento, and managing editor, Jessica Sonkin, to recap the fall semester. Thank you all for being here and joining the show. Thank you for having us, Hope. And Maddie. We're excited. (laughs) What were some of our favorite memories at the Cardinal this semester? That's a big question. I mean, there's been so many great standout moments, just like personally in the office, but also just in our reporting. But I think one that was really exciting this year was our election coverage for the midterm elections. Obviously, it was a really big election here with the governor's race as well as the U.S. Senate race. But for the Cardinal, it was a big moment, too, because it was the first time we were able to have everyone back in the office for election night coverage. Obviously, with the pandemic um, in 2020, that sort of derailed traditional um, election night coverage and also just vibes in the office. So it was a really fun night to have. We had over, I think, like 30 writers, editors, photographers, reporters, artists, analysts just like working all night. And it was just such a fun energy in the office, having everyone there and, you know, having pizza sort of a tried and true moment of election night coverage. And also, you know, our state editor and Jessica, our managing editor, actually were able to run to the um, governor's watch party at the end of the night, which is a really fun way to sort of wrap up that. So I would definitely say that was a standout moment in the office. One of the biggest stories this year was the complex issue of free speech. What were some of the developments there and what are the implications? This was a large talking point when we sat down with Chancellor Mnookin a few weeks back in order to get her perspective on some of these issues around campus, one of which occurred on the first day of classes when there were some problematic sidewalk chalkings that spurred discussion across Jewish student groups. This was a continued conversation as over Halloween weekend, there was a man local to Madison who dressed as Hitler. It became a discussion with local police and it eventually got to the university as well. Then there's also the discussion of Matt Walsh, who is a right-wing commentator who has also been described as a theocratic fascist. There were protests and counter-protests about his presence on campus. While we want to make sure the students 
who felt potentially attacked or disheartened or upset by the presence of these occurrences on campus, we wanted to make sure they were being put in the spotlight because these are difficult issues to process and understand, particularly because some fall under the realm of hate speech. But on the other side of that coin, we want to be able to analyze the perspectives of the people that these messages may be coming from. When we spoke with Jennifer Manukin in her first semester as chancellor, what were some of her other goals and responses to campus issues? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, it was our first chance to sit down with Chancellor Manukin since she started in August. And what she really emphasized in um, in this moment, this semester, has really been sort of a, and I quote, listening and learning um, time for her. She has been meeting with stakeholders in the university, in the state, in the community, in the city, the counties. She's, you know, been in Cranberry Marshes and, you know, anywhere and everywhere in between. But what has become abundantly clear is that she is interested in the sort of bigger picture issues relating to campus in UW-Madison. Some specific areas she touched on are what it looks like to increase belonging for students historically marginalized on campus and continuously marginalized on campus. Additionally, she's touched on uh, University of uh, Wisconsin's research ranking. Um, Over the years, it has declined. And um, although to her, uh, she believes those metrics as somewhat um, skewed in the fact they only represent fiscal decline. Additionally, um, in our Uh, conversation with her. She touched on important issues such as mental health access on campus, as well as um, other diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives and what those look like. But the overall sentiment just from our direct conversations with the chancellor is that, you know, it's her first couple months on campus and she's definitely still getting her footing. But this this time with her, um, with our community and really uh, talking with uh, stakeholders, it's a time for her to really craft those initial goals and responses that um, will be developed over the course of her tenure. Right now, a huge issue affecting students in the city is affordable rent prices. Can you recap how the leasing season went and where do you see it going from here? Yes, certainly. So at the end of September, our editorial board here at the Daily Cardinal, which Sophia and I are both on, put together a piece called Cardinal View, Madison Housing Shortages, Rent Surges Need to be Addressed. This came shortly after some of the buildings off campus that students reside in decided to hike rent prices dramatically. They're considered luxury living environments. However, some of these apartments have prime locations right off campus that are under high demand for students looking to have a place where they might not need to walk really far to get home to at night or just a place where they wouldn't necessarily need a car to do other things around. That being said, this isn't just affecting students who might be living in those quote-unquote luxury living complexes. This is affecting everyone, including incoming students who are occupying university housing. We have a whole section about university housing in that editorial board piece, which talks about how returning housing residents did in fact receive multiple offers to cancel their contracts. Obviously, this poses concerns, seeing as though the university needs to be able to house its student community, and we're interested in seeing how it progresses from here. 
This semester has also included a lot of breaking sports news. How have we covered those developments and how do you think the campus community is responding to all of this? It's been a big semester for sports news, specifically football. Personally, as someone who's not particularly knowledgeable of sports, it's definitely been a bit of a learning experience, but it has been primarily regarding staffing. Obviously, in October, I believe, um, our head coach, uh, Paul Christ, was let go, and um, our interim, Jim Leonard, took over, who was our defensive coordinator, and just... um, Last month, uh, the program announced Luke Fickle as our new head coach for the football program. This has spurred quite a bit of changes in the department, specifically with um, offensive coordinators as well as defensive coordinators and other staffing. But also in big news, our quarterback, Graham Mertz, recently announced that he is leaving the university. So it's definitely been a really tumultuous time um, with our sports coverage, and I really want to give kudos to our sports editors, um, Donnie Slusher and Cole Wozniak, for really being on top of it. As a Big Ten school, you know, we have a really deep, passionate uh, sports program and sports fans, and we really wanted to cater to that group in that we know our audience cares, and I could not be more proud of the coverage we've been able to do this semester, and we are really, you know, sitting on the edge of our seats, ready to see what comes next. What are some of the issues that you expect the Cardinal will cover next semester? Well, as management, Sophia and I have already been planning for our upcoming action project in the spring. We are not going to reveal the theme of that just yet, but you'll have to stay tuned in order to find out once we cross that bridge. And we have begun some in-depth reporting and feature work that will be continued into next semester that we have yet to report on because they are still works in progress. Are there any other stories or cardinal updates you'd like to share? Well, first, I would just like to say thank you to all of our outgoing editors this semester. Um, we had our last night of print um, last week, and it was, a, it was a bittersweet moment to see it. We have about 10 editors leaving um, this semester. We are so excited to see what everyone is up to next and could not be more proud of them and their work at the Cardinal. With that, uh, given this turnover, we have welcomed a bunch of new editors Maddie Afonso is one of them, and we are so excited to have them um, on our team, working um, in our news teams and our short shift desks. And with that, our fall farewell issue is also out. Uh, It is out on stands in physical print uh, as of last week, and there's a little bit of an Easter egg in there, so definitely be sure to keep your eye out for um, a little bit of a mention of one of our most dedicated and vocal news reporters. So yeah, I'll leave you with that. We will continue to publish daily, Monday through Friday, starting on January 26th. So be on the lookout for our first print issue of the spring semester. Thank you all for coming on the show and guiding us through another semester at the Cardinal. And thank you, Hope, for your time at the Cardinal doing Cardinal Call. We're going to miss you so much. For those of you who don't know, Hope is also our lovely news manager, and she is a (laughs) boss lady. She's our news mom. News mom. News mom. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us for another semester of the Cardinal Call. We'll catch you back here in January. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison.
Not just a sign of spring, Wisconsin State Bird actually lives here year-round as long as they have enough food to eat. On this week's archival edition of Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg explores why robins stick around and how they care for themselves during the winter season. Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment and today we're going to be talking about American robins in the wintertime. Now American robins are here in the state of Wisconsin almost all year round and that's not something that people think of most often because you think of robins and well the first thought that comes to your head is these are a bird that show us the first sign of spring and while that is definitely true a number of them are going to come back from migration uh, back into Wisconsin during the breeding periods uh, it doesn't mean that they can't survive here necessarily as long as there is good food for them to eat. So I was thinking about American Robins this week because today, actually Tuesday, if it is Wildlife Weekly Tuesday, we released an American Robin and I know the weather seems like it's a little bit crummy, um, but this was a bird that had come in in October. It had hit a window, uh, had some neurological trauma. Uh, we call it ataxia because they were, it was unbalanced and unable to stand and had some open mouth breathing and a couple of internal parasites that we were able to treat. Now this particular robin, we believe is a female because she's kind of lightly colored and has a nice uh, bright orange breast with some beige kind of uh, coloration to those breast feathers um, and overall really large size uh, and ate very, very well in captivity. As you can imagine, we're giving lots of good food, so fruit and worms and everything else that they eat um, because we were worried about, you know, sending a bird like that off at this time of year when there's lower food availability. Now we've had a little bit of a milder time. I mean, I think this week has been colder than maybe it has been in the last couple of weeks, um, but there's definitely robins that are still being identified. And the nice thing is you can look up on eBird, which is our citizen science bird site for tracking individual species um, or animals, and specifically birds. And in the state of Wisconsin, we are still seeing reports of robins. So if you look on the range maps of Dane County, for example, we have still seen in the last week robins that are around the Arboretum. Um, we've had some that are a little bit further south than that, like the Jenny and Kyle Preserve. Um, just a number of them in different spots, usually still in flocks. Um, and as long as there is food, again, available for them to eat, and when the ground is frozen, they will switch to berries. So that's where they're gonna get most of their calories. Um, that's where you're gonna find them. So anywhere that, you know, Arboretum is definitely one I think of because there's lots of fruit bearing trees in the Arboretum. Um, but yes, they can survive and they can be here and people put out food for some songbird species and robins will take advantage of that. So this robin had stored up so much beautiful fat that we felt very good it was going to be able to migrate. Uh, and if you look up some information about their regional stats, you know, are, how many of them are here? Well, if you look on the, uh, the regional data from the eBird, you can actually see that about 0.06% uh, of the population seasonally is here in the non-breeding season. So it's really not very many robins, um, but particularly they seem to be more male than female. 
So the reason that males generally occupy the territory here in the north uh, more often than females is just because the female is going to have to really be um, keen on stocking up more food during the winter time so that in the spring they're ready to have babies. Um, and so the males tend to stick around and keep a territory. Um, so those might be the ones that you're usually seeing more often than not. And I think that's a kind of a neat thing that not a lot of people really think about. Um, normally they're going to travel together in some loose flocks during the migration periods. They don't really like to be right next to each other though. So if you've ever seen them spaced out in a little grid pattern, that's, <laughs> that's what they like. And then if we're talking, uh, you know, the fall migration, obviously going south where there's lots of food available, but in the spring they'll come back. Usually if the males have left, it'll be about two weeks that they arrive before the females do. So really interesting. Um, their patterns are really irregular. People have done uh, GPS monitoring and have tracked their migration of robins. And it's not exactly the easiest thing to say uh, that, you know, it, it's a certain date or a certain time period. We don't know for sure if it's, uh, you know, at a consistent location every time. We consider robins to be what are called nomadic birds. So they wander around kind of not regularly. Um, and you might see one robin in, uh, you know, Wisconsin this year. And then the next year, maybe you'll see it uh, somewhere further south in Kansas. Who knows? So it's really interesting. Um, and they fly a lot further than you'd think. The average flight is 38 miles in a day for a robin, which would be like from here to close to Janesville in one day. But if they get really good weather and conditions, they can actually migrate about 100 to 200 miles in a day. And that is incredible. And then sometimes the flocks can be over 60,000 plus. Usually it's going to be about 50 birds, but you'll you'll see them all in like in one big section, which is just so cool. And they will migrate both at night and during the daytime. So you never know when you're going to find one or when you're going to see one that might be sick or injured that potentially needs rehabilitation. So that's what we know. We know that we have, you know, robins here. They will still be looking for food. So just be aware that this is the time where we've got frozen ground and they might struggle a bit. You know, if they're a first year hatchier bird, their chances of making a migration or surviving through their first winter is generally about 25%. So, you know, that's not very high. The bird that we released today was definitely an adult. So we feel like it had been through a migration and can choose to go south if it would like to. But be on the lookout, put out some extra food, you know, some fruit and worms. That way they've got something to eat if we do have bad weather. So, you know, lots of things to put at your feeders. We definitely suggest things like dried mealworms, uh, real mealworms, uh, berries such as raspberries, blueberries, blackberries. Um, you know, some of those are a little bit better. Uh, you want to avoid putting out grapes and things because that can be toxic to some other animals. So, so many different choices that you can you can go for, but look it up, see what they eat. Um, you know, the worms are going to have more protein than the berries, but the berries give them lots of sugar and extra energy so that they can survive here uh, during this time period. Okay, well, that's what we've got for today, our uh, segment on Wildlife Weekly about American robins. If you do find one that is in distress and needs help, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And otherwise, this has been Wildlife Weekly. This week on Radio Astronomy, host Andrew Nine turns his eye to the darkest portions of our night sky in search of, well, anything that may be out there. Good evening, and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nine, and tonight, what happens when we turn out all of the lights? 
A team of astronomers led by Dr. Roger Windhorst of Arizona State University answered just this question by sifting through decades of data from the Hubble Space Telescope. In a recent series of papers published in the Astronomical Journal and the Astrophysical Journal Letters, the team announced the discovery of a previously unknown source of light that covers the entire night sky. But before we talk about that, let's talk about how dark the night sky is. At first glance, the answer looks like it should be, well, as dark as it possibly can get, right? There's no light coming from a spot where there aren't any stars, so shouldn't it be infinitely dark? The reality is a bit more complicated than that. On Earth, there are a lot of factors to consider. If you're in a city like Madison, one obvious factor is the light pollution coming from streetlights and buildings. That light gets scattered by our atmosphere and makes the night sky appear brighter, which limits how faint of objects our telescopes can see from the ground. This is why the largest research telescopes in the world are located far away from city lights. The moon also contributes a lot of light in the night sky. You may have even seen this for yourself. If you've been out far away from the city on a clear night with a full moon, you may have noticed that the moon is bright enough to cast a shadow by itself. And if you look up, you may have seen much fewer stars than when the moon is down. Astronomers also have to plan around the phase of the moon, since the light it contributes also limits how faint of objects telescopes can observe. Because of this, astronomers plan to observe their faintest objects during the new moon when the moon is down the entire night. Things are different once we get above Earth's atmosphere. Because there's no air to scatter light, space-based telescopes like Hubble and JWST don't have to worry about light pollution or moonlight, but there are still other sources of light to consider. One source is the zodiacal lights, which is sunlight reflected off asteroids in the asteroid belt between Earth and Mars. It's possible to see these from the ground. If you're away from the city during the sunset on a clear day, if you look towards the east away from the sun, you might be able to see a faint band of green light across the sky. Those are the zodiacal lights. So the question that Dr. Windhorst and his collaborators were trying to answer is, given every known source of light in the night sky, what is the absolute faintest object that any telescope on or near Earth could ever hope to observe? To answer that, the astronomers looked at images taken by the Hubble Space Telescope over the 30 years it's been in operation and subtracted out all of the light from all of the stars, planets, galaxies, and everything else in the images until they had the most complete and comprehensive image of absolutely nothing ever created. And there was still light. Not very much, though. It was only the equivalent of about 10 fireflies distributed all across the night sky. Or, to use a more seasonal analogy, about 10 small LED Christmas tree lights. But the question remained, where was this light coming from? We don't know the answer yet, but the team has a hypothesis a cloud of comet dust inside of our solar system. As comets swing by the sun in their orbits, they leave behind trails of dust. This is why we have meteor showers a few times a year. Over time, as more comets swing into the inner solar system, 
They leave behind more and more dust until it becomes a cloud surrounding the sun and reflecting light back towards Earth. We know it has to be within the solar system because this team of astronomers compared their work to a similar study another team did with the New Horizons mission, which is currently out past Pluto and heading into interstellar space. The New Horizons team also looked at the sky background in their images, and they did not see the same amount of light, which means this cloud has to exist relatively close to Earth, somewhere in the solar system. This comet dust cloud is vanishingly thin, which is why it took so long for astronomers to find it, but it's still enough to scatter light. But now that we know it's there, astronomers can take that light into account as they look for fainter and fainter objects in the sky. And it's just enough to make the night sky a little bit brighter. This is Andrew Nine from Radio Astronomy. Thank you for tuning in, and have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporters tonight were Abigail Levins and David Ahrens. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the radio astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Buggy helped produce this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News podcast and subscribe wherever you find your audio. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful, up next with Spanish language news with Enrique Patio. Good night.